All right, before I read from Luke, let me just tell you briefly why I think you should listen to this. Um, so you, you may or may not know, um, if you're breathing, that uh, midterms are coming up, and um, and this is not going to be a political sermon. So just, um, but what it is going to be about is this idea that there's a little bit of division in our country, just just small, and. Um, and like everything else that happens in our culture, it, it's infiltrated the church. And I'm wondering if it can be different. If we can be different. If following Jesus would drive us to the point to where, sure, maybe we pick sides, but we don't look at the other side with such contempt and arrogance even hatred. Does Jesus call us to something different? Keep that in mind as we read this passage uh, in Luke chapter 6. In these days, he, Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and he healed them all. This is God's word to us. It is absolutely true, and it has been given to us in love. Let me pray, and we'll dive in. Jesus, help us now as we hear from your word, please uh, convict us, challenge us, encourage us, remind us of your great love for us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, several months ago, a good friend of mine, uh, we do this every, every so often, we went to a Dave Matthews Band concert, uh, Peter Gabriel last week. Dave Matthews band this week. Uh, and before you dog on the whole like Dave Matthews thing, like I just want to point out, like I'm almost 50, I'm white, I'm balding, like that's all the music I got, right? Like li- little bit of little bit of U2 and some 90s rock thrown in there. Like that's that's my that's my music. I love going to Dave's concerts. Um, but but what I noticed this particular time is at their concerts, there there are people from all walks of life. I mean, you, you walk in, and you can just tell, right, from obviously from the way people look, from the T-shirts they're wearing. But, I mean, it, it, was, it was young, it was old, it was black, it was white. There was the really white, you know, the, the one in three people that, you know, you know who you are. Like, it's okay. Gay, straight, 
Republican, Democrat, I mean, they were all there. And why they were there, why were they there? They were there for one thing, to see one guy and his band. And so for three hours, three hours, everyone, all these different people from all these walks of life, all different beliefs, they're focused on him. They only hear him. They're only looking at him. They're celebrating him. I mean, there, there's the drunk guy that's in the, in the road just in front of me, and we don't know each other from Adam, and they, and they start into this one song, and he and I go crazy, and we realize, like, it's our, one of our favorite songs from him, and so our eyes meet, and there's this connection, and we high-five, and I'm like, I have no idea who you are, but this is beautiful. Here we are. Nobody's fighting. Nobody's yelling at each other. Nobody's accusing each other of all these awful things. Just for those three hours, we're just sitting there, focused, listening, dare I say, worshiping. Not the band so much, but the God who created the band that can play music. And there's these moments, right, where you see those kind of things and you see all these different people from all sorts of backgrounds and different beliefs and different thoughts. And you, and you can't help but think to yourself, man, what if, what if within the church there was, there was someone that we did that with? What, what if there was a, a, a cause or a person or, oh, wait. What if Jesus was that for us? And again, I just want to point out, I'm not saying that you can't take a side and I'm not saying that you can't disagree with people. I'm, I'm not saying any of that. I'm just simply asking the question, is there someone, is there something that we could do in the church? Could we focus on Jesus in such a way that it transcends everything else? That it transcends our politics and our political affiliations? It would transcend our sports. That it would transcend how we view human sexuality, that it would transcend our, our, our constant need to look good, to have the, this, this image-driven life that we live, that it would transcend money, that it would transcend who sits on the Supreme Court, that it would transcend who's senator or governor or president, that it would transcend the need to be right. Can Jesus do that in us? What Luke is doing in this passage is that he's calling us back to our first love because that's what it is. To love Jesus more than any of those things that I just mentioned. And that all of our conversations and our interactions and our Facebook posts and our tweets and our thoughts about people in our neighborhood or in this church or wherever, that it, that, that would flow out of this love for Jesus. And so Luke is bringing us back in that, and this is how he does it. He does it in three ways. And let me just say from the outset, um, yeah, there's three points, but really there's only one. And the two other points will kind of flow from that. And the first point is like 75% of this thing. And if you don't get that, the other two things don't really matter. 
So let me tell you what they are. All right, so first thing. First thing is, is we must be in communion with Jesus. We must live out community in Jesus. And we must be commissioned into ministry by Jesus. So communion, community, commission. I don't love commission, but it was a good C word, so there it is. All right, communion. Look at verse 12. Luke writes this, In these days Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. All right, when he says in these days, what he's talking about is what has just happened right before this. And if you have a Bible, you can see it, but I'll just try to describe it real quick. Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. And the religious leaders, because they care more about being right than they do about humanity, took issue with it. And the way that the passage ends, it says this, the religious leaders, they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So when it says in these days, it's the reality that Jesus is now walking around as a wanted man, basically. People are after him. People want to destroy him. They're going after him. So that's the, the top half. The second half is that right, bef- right after this, Jesus is going to, it's a pretty significant decision, right, to pick the 12 dudes that he's going to change, with whom he's going to change the world. And in between that is this long time of prayer. It says, continue all night, all night he continued in prayer to God. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but I stink at prayer. It is so hard for me to do it for any significant amount of time without help. So I have apps. I use the Psalms a lot. I love to just sit on my porch and just be. And so when it says that Jesus went all night in prayer, I think it's safe to assume that he did not have a long list of requests, petitions, If he used the Psalms, which I'm pretty sure he did, then you've got everything, right? You've got Jesus bringing his fears, his needs, his desires, his laments. But there's also going to be times of waiting and being quiet. Be still. Be still and know that I am God. Taste and see that the Lord is good. My point is, is that when Jesus goes and he prays all night, he's entering into this communion with God. He's not necessarily looking for answers. He's not necessarily asking God to fix things. Because let's be honest, God doesn't. At least not in the way that we want him to. And so maybe what's more important for Jesus in this particular time is not answers. It's not getting things fixed. It's just simply being in communion with his Father. And what you notice throughout Jesus' ministry is kind of this, this kind of a weaving in and out, almost like a DNA strand of, of communion, ministry, communion, ministry, communion, ministry. That ministry actually flowed out of his communion. 
It wasn't the other way around. We do this so often. We, we so define ourselves by what we do. Instead of who we are. There's these hints throughout the Gospels where Jesus, he hears the voice of his father. If you think about after his baptism, when he goes out into the desert, and when he is on the mount, and he's transfigured, and, and what does he hear? Think about the baptism just for a second. Before Jesus has done anything, before he's healed anyone, before he's preached, before he's said anything, the voice of his father says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Before he did anything. That was that is what drove him into ministry. That is what made him who he was. That was why when the Satan, when Satan came to him and said, if you are the son of God, what is Satan doing? He's questioning his very identity. Are you really the beloved? Are you really, really? You hear that voice. I hear that voice. And the way that we try to answer it is by doing more. I think this is why we get into these arguments all the time. Because if we're right, then we can feel better about ourselves. Instead of living in communion with our Father, He tells us, you are the Beloved. This idea of communion is not um, we can have this conversation if you, if you want to, but I am convinced this is what Christianity is about. J- just, just think about the bookends of Scripture for a second, okay? So you've got the garden before sin, and then you've got the city, the new Jerusalem. And there are such great parallels between those two passages of Scripture that make up the beginning and the end. And what's what's the common denominator of those? The presence of God. What what makes the garden the garden is that the Adam and Eve were with God because that's what they were created for. And then you have in Revelation. The very end, John writes, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. The bookends of Scripture are telling us what we're created for, what we're meant for, where we're headed. And it's not moral behavior, y'all. That is not the goal of following Jesus. The goal of following Jesus is to be in communion with the Father through the resurrected Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is what we are created for. It's where we're headed. And it's all through Scripture. All through Scripture. You are still my beloved, Adam and Eve. Through you, I will save the world with your seed. You're the beloved, Abraham. Go and bless the world because I am with you. 
You are my beloved, Moses. Go and free Israel. You are my beloved, Joshua. Do not be afraid. I am with you. You are my beloved, David. Go and rule the world in that knowledge. And so this is why you see in the Psalms over and over again, things like, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. I desire you in a dry and weary land. You are my beloved Israel. Go and show my glory to the world. You are my beloved church. Go and show others my beauty and my grace and my patience and my kindness and my delight. Can you hear that voice? Do you hear the Father saying, you're my beloved? Can you sit long enough, whether if it's in the car or in the shower or on your porch, and sit long enough and hear that voice? One writer says this, he says, dear friends, I want you to hear this. What is said of Jesus, remember the Father calls Jesus the beloved. What is said of Jesus is said of you. I know this can be hard to affirm. You are the beloved daughter or son of God. Can you believe it? Can you hear it not only in your head, through your physical ears, but in your gut? Hear it so that your whole life is turned around. Go to the scriptures and read, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have written your name in the palm of my hand from all eternity. I have molded you in the depths of the earth and knitted you to your mother's womb. I love you. I embrace you. You are mine. I am yours and you belong to me. Redeemer Church, can you hear that voice? Because until we do, we will be no different from the culture around us. We'll be just like everyone else. Jesus is calling us to something different and greater. I don't know what you think about how God feels toward you. I don't know many of you very well. But I've been a pastor for, I don't know, 15, 20 years. And whenever I sit down with folks, it is not unfair to say that most of the time they assume that God is either angry with them or disappointed in them. Does that, does that resonate with any of you? It's a lie. a lie from the pit of hell. If you are in Jesus, God does not simply tolerate you. He does not simply put up with you. He delights in you. He takes pleasure in you. 
that is the voice we have to hear. Because if we don't hear that voice from God, we will hear different voices from the community that we want to be a part of or that we feel like we should be a part of. I think this is another reason. Because we can't hear the voice of God in our communion with him tell us that we are the beloved, we find a community that will tell us that we're okay. But what if we found a community that was different? The thing about the communities that we tend to find ourselves in is that we're never going to be enough for them. Or they're never going to be enough for you. seems like we're operating in this place where like we're either all this or all that and if you're not all this or all that then you hate the other side and so what happens then is that in this other community that is apart from Jesus what we start doing or what actually what becomes demanded of us is that it's not, it's not enough just to be a part of the community. You also have to be so much a part of the community that other people know that you're a part of said community. And so now you have to put things out there and you have to let folks know what you're against and what you believe and what you think. And if you don't, then you're not enough. But what if the community that Jesus is calling us to was enough. Because look, the church community makes no sense apart from Jesus. Being a follower of the risen Christ means that we enter into a community of which we would never be a part of if it weren't for Jesus himself. Look at verses 13 through 15. It says, and when the day, when day came, Jesus called his disciples and chose from the twelve whom he, turned, whom he named apostles, Simon, who he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Susan mentioned this. Uh, earlier in the service, but what we have to remember is that these 12 guys, they were not the church league all-stars. I think we tend to look at these guys and think, oh man, what, what great guys, Jesus picked them. But what we have to remember is that they had different backgrounds, they had different temperaments, they had different understanding of who Jesus was and what he came to do. They were jealous of one another, and even sometimes furious with one another. Jesus did not look into the crowd and said, all right, let me find the 12 most spiritual dudes I can find, and I want them to follow me. That's just not how it works. I mean, look, just look, just real quick at this list, all right? So you've got Peter, the denier, the betrayer. Andrew, the questioner. James and John, they're, I think you could say they were a little, little power hungry. Philip, another questioner, Bartholomew, 
I mean, do any of you even know who Bartholomew is? Like, like his name pops up a couple of times, and you're like, yeah, okay, yeah, I'm fine. Yeah. Matthew, the tax collector, Thomas, the doubter, James, the son of Alphaeus, another don't know who that is, Simon, who was called the Zealot. That was his nickname. Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became the traitor. Look, <laughs> Jesus looked at these guys and said, yeah, I'll take this crack squad of savvy motivated personalities to change the world. Thank you, Jerry Conclave, for that statement. A ton could be said about all these guys, and I don't want to spend a ton of time on it, but I do want to point out two key names that kind of pop out. Yeah, Matthew, the tax collector. And Simon the Zealot, all right? So the tax collector, Matthew, worked for the Romans, the very nation that was occupying Israel and had control and was running things. Simon the Zealot was a political activist. He wanted the Romans out. He wanted things to just be focused on Israel itself. Two completely different sides. And if I can put it a little bit more clear, clearly, Matthew was for big government. Simon was for small government. And what Jesus did is he looked at these two dudes and he said, you know what? You will not be defined by either one of those things. You will be defined by following me. That is what is going to bring you into community. Not thinking and agreeing with everyone. Not being the same. You know this, I know this, community, real, true community, it's hard, it's messy, it's exhausting, but of course it is because you're a part of it, you're in it, that's why it's the way it is, you actually could be Judas, the Judas, the traitor of your community. And everyone would agree with that. And you're clueless. We're so prone to look at everyone out there and their issues and their problems and what's wrong with them. But if we believe that we're truly the beloved, we are free to look on the inside and say, how do I contribute to the messiness of this community? We're all struggling. Someone had a Wendell Berry book up front, and I don't know whose it was, but I had a quote in here before I saw the book. <laughs> Berry says that we are all living out our small, short, surprising, miserable, wonderful, blessed, damaged, only life. And we have to do it together. Not just with people who look like us, think like us, believe like us, vote like us. 
Because that's, that's not community, y'all. That's a social club. That's, that's, a, that's a refugee camp of the same folks being together and huddling up and protecting one another. The real community that Jesus calls us to is to actually be with those who are difficult to love. The second we start dreaming about our ideal community, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, is, 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 is the second you kill it because you start demanding that everyone be a certain way. And what Jesus does with these 12 dudes is like, no, this is who you are. I'm bringing you together, and you're going to follow me. So here's a fun question. Who do you not want to be this way? Who do you not want to spend any time with? Let me get kind of practical here, some application, because I normally don't do that well with application, but we'll try it. Who in this room, all right? Just think about the room. Just think about the church for a second. Who would you rather not spend time with? Who is it difficult for you to interact with? That's the person that you need to grab and say, hey, can we go grab coffee or a beer or dinner? Maybe not right now because that would be kind of awkward, right? Like, so, you know, give, give that a week or two. Have them over for dinner. Get to know them. Hear them out. Listen. Don't, don't prove. You don't have to prove yourself. So if we are in communion, living as the beloved, being in community together with people who are not like us and whom we have no reason to be with except for that we're followers of Jesus, then we can go out and be commissioned by Jesus. This last section Starting in verse uh, 17, Jesus came down with them, stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured and all the crowds sought to touch him for power came out from him and he healed them. Remember, Luke is a physician. And in um, 24 chapters of his gospel, he mentions some type of healing 20-something times. So almost once a chapter. And it was a huge part of Jesus' ministry that he healed. He longs to heal. He lives to heal. He died to heal. He was resurrected so that you would be ultimately healed. But one of the things I want you to see here is that the word all. Did you notice it? Twice in the last verse. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them Oh, you voted for Trump? Sorry, can't heal you. You voted for Biden? Not a chance. All. 
all their troubles, all their evil spirits, all their diseases. I want to say out loud to you that there is nothing about you that Jesus cannot and will not heal. Maybe not in the time frame that we hope we want or hope. But he never looks at you and says, ooh, that's bad. Uh, yeah, I don't think I'm going to be able to heal that. And if he's that way with us, and he is, can we be that way with others? Regardless of background, religion, sexuality, gender identity, political affiliation. Could we, just in the name of Jesus, be people who heal? What if our reputation was that? What's the church like? Oh, they're a bunch of healers. Man. What if that was our reputation? that was our function, if that's how we operated, because we are the beloved, because we're in community with one another, could we go out in a ministry of healing? Would the church be more attractive to unbelievers if that was us? I'm going to end with this. I told you the second and thirds are pretty short. But just kind of want to wrap it up a little bit. Um, recently in my neighborhood, they created a, uh, a roundabout. Big, huge roundabout. And in the middle of it, um, they put a, uh, a life-size whale. Y'all, I live in Utah. <laughs> I'm not making this up. Google it. Ninth and ninth whale, Salt Lake City. 40 feet tall, 40 feet wide. It's got the big, huge flippers sticking out of it. <laughs> in one of the newspaper articles, someone said, I feel like I'm getting a giant whale hug every time I go around the roundabout. Me and a buddy who is uh, he's an atheist, we believe so many different things, but he's a dear friend. We were drinking coffee, sitting outside on a bench, staring at this monstrosity. And as we were sitting there talking about it, like more people started coming by, all sorts of different people. And everyone had an opinion about the whale. And I said to my buddy, I was like, how ridiculous is it that we're that we're focused on this whale. He's like, ah, maybe. But have you noticed that we haven't gotten in any fights over politics or religion or any other thing? Like, everyone's just focused on the whale, good or bad. You know where I'm going with this, right? What if that was the church's focus? 
What if the church's focus was more than anything else? The big, huge arms of Christ saying, you're my beloved. You're my beloved. Go and live in community. Go and bring healing to the world. Let me pray. Father, help us in this, we pray. It's not, um, it is not easy. It doesn't come natural to us. And so, um, we desperately need you to do it in us. By your spirit, we pray.